there. This is Abby at Recovery Radio, and I'm going to share a simple secret that will make you smile all day. Just go to www.recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. The larger the amount you donate, the bigger your smile will be. Feel the power of recovery for yourself and become part of the solution. Go to recoveryradio.net right now and start your day with a smile. My grandmother told me a long time ago, she said, it's totally impossibly, impossible to pray too much, but it's definitely possible not to pray enough. So let's pray a little bit more. Heavenly Father, use me this morning as an instrument of thy will. Speak through me. So, so whatever results that you desire here this morning will be accomplished in all things. Thy will, not mine, be done. Amen. Good morning. Uh, what I love most about AA is the simplicity of it. I'm a real simple guy. Uh, I'm not a guy who can quote what page and stuff out of the book. Um, just a living program. It's not a memorizing program. It's not an analyzing program. It's not a discussing program. It is a design for living. Till the rubber meets the road, I'm going to be somewhere drunk with a whole lot of knowledge about Alcoholics Anonymous. But somewhere in that book, there's a line that says, remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people. It is dependent upon his relationship with God. If I had the power to quit drinking on my own, I'd have never come to AA. Why should I? Why should I? I have power in my life today that I choose to call God who does for me one day at a time what I could never do for myself. I establish and grow in that relationship through living to the best of my ability one day at a time, which is never perfect. The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is outlined by the founders in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that is the reason that I pray before I tell you who I am from behind the podium, because I ain't here because of me. Left to my own devices, I absolutely guarantee you, I would have destroyed myself years ago. That prayer reminds me of two things I believe are vital and crucial to me staying here. First and foremost, the reason I'm in Greensboro this morning is to do God's will, not mine. And it also serves to remind me that he is in charge here this morning. And as always, thank, thank God, I am not. Good morning. My name is Ken. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I was raised right. I want to demonstrate that. I want to thank the committee uh, for, for the invitation to be here. It is an honor and a privilege to participate in the life-giving, life-changing, life-saving fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous at any level, setting up and cleaning up at the home group, going into the detoxes, the jails, the institutions, uh, serving on committee, all of the things I've been blessed with. I'm a managing trustee of Dr. Bob's home. I have been blessed to do a lot of wonderful things in Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I've learned is this, is that you can't outgive a fellowship that restores life to the living dead. You cannot. But it's a lot of fun trying, ain't it? And that's what we do it here, man, right? I was talking to my friend Jimmy, uh, who you'll hear talk tonight, uh, and be sure to be here for that because he got a tremendous talk. Uh, we was talking about how much people get of us when we come here. This is amazing. We sit at the feet of giants, and they, in my home group, my home group was an Oxford group meeting. That's how old it is. I mean, I'm only an hour away from where Alcoholics Anonymous was born. And, and when I became a member of that group, there was four men in that group who were at the 1950 convention in Cleveland. And they were kind and gentle men. I, I, and I, it's funny, because that, that conversation I had with Jimmy this morning sparked a lot of stuff. And, and see, that's the way God do me. 
I don't, when I come to the podium, I don't think about what I'm going to say. This is God's business. This is not mine. He will do what he wants to do this morning. But I got to thinking, no, I got the, I got the coffee commitment at that group when I was new. And uh only problem is, is that I don't know how to make coffee. I had never drank coffee. It, it, they didn't serve coffee down at the bucket of blood. So, so I got the coffee commitment. I don't know how to make coffee, but I ain't telling you that. Right? Right? Because what would you think of me? Right? What would you think of me? So I'm telling you, that entire week I suffered. Every day I woke up, eyes open, the coffee. The coffee. I'm in my mind, I've got this scenario of people drinking the coffee and collapsing, and it's just, it's, it's just insane, right? So Friday night comes, and I get to the meeting, and this was a big meeting. It was almost this big. And we had 300 cup coffee pots, right? And so we get there, and I've also got to set up the tables and chairs, and i got to get out the literature. That's a part of this commitment. And so I get there, and I walk in, and there sits them four old guys. And I'm thinking to myself, aha, they, they don't trust me, <laughs> right? And so, so I, I set up the tables and chairs. I get out the literature. I'm delaying this coffee thing, right? And finally I go and I get the 300 cup pots out, right? And it was an old time, old Herb. Herb B. God rest his soul. Herb looking at me and he said, hey, Kent. He said, man, he said, I don't know about you. He said, but when I do a hundred cupper, he said, I like to put it right about that line, put the coffee right about that line right there. He said, how do you like to do it? I said, well, Herb, I like to do it the exact same way. I put it right to that line right there. Do you get it? Do you get it? That's how I came in here. They did not tell me they showed me. The power of example, I believe, is the most powerful thing that we have here and um and i'm very grateful and and i rarely say no to alcoholics anonymous i do this i don't know 30 35 times a year i'm on an airplane going somewhere in the world um sometime i say not now i don't say no but sometimes i have to say not now because i have other things to do right but I, if you want to do it somewhere later down the road i'd be more than happy to do it um because people did it for me People did it for me. Um, I, I want to thank Chris and I want to thank Tammy for the kind words. Because um, she was like, I wonder if he's crazy. Yeah, he is. <laughs> right? I want to thank you for it. Whenever I hear these wonderful introductions in AA, it always reminds me of an old story. And this is a story about this man who dies, and at his funeral, his widow and young son is sitting on the front pew of the church, and the preacher get up to preach the eulogy, and he talks for 15 minutes about what a wonderful husband this man was, 15 minutes about what a great father this man was, another 15 minutes about what an upstanding citizen this man was. Finally, the widow gets this real concerned look on her face and leans over to her son and says, Hey, Junior, go up there and look in that box and see if that's your daddy. Right? So sometimes I think our reputations exceed our character, but it is, it is really a, because it, it, it wasn't that long ago when one too many people saying nothing nice about me. And rightfully so.
rightfully so. So it, it really is, uh, I, I want to thank uh, everybody connected uh, with this wonderful weekend. Uh, I'm really enjoying myself. George, give a wonderful talk last night. And right, if you wasn't here, you, you need to get that talk on, on the CD. Um, what, a, what a wonderful start to the weekend. I, I got off the airplane yesterday. I was tired. worked half a day yesterday. I was tired when I got down here. And by the time that uh, George got done last night, I was walking around out here looking for new guys, right? You know, that's what we do in here, right? Right, that's what we do in here. When I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't come here with AA etiquette. I didn't know what a sponsor was. I didn't know what a home group was. I had never been to Alcoholics Anonymous, nor did I know any other human being who had ever been here or who would at least admit to having been here. When I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, nobody sprinkled pixie dust on my head, and all of a sudden I understand what this is. I don't know how to conduct myself. I, when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I bring you what I am. Right here, right now. That's what I am. And when I came in here, I had the word mother wrapped around every other word I said. No, I, I didn't understand any of this. Right? And nobody told me. Nobody yelled at me. Nobody screamed at me. You, you, you shared with me. You shared with me. You know, it's funny because I hear people where I live at who are sober less than I am talk about well, boy, when we came in here, them old timers sure was hard on us. They told us to shut up. No, they did. No, they did not. No, they did not. No. So I came to Alcoholics Anonymous with no prior contact or no information about it at all. At all. And, and so I'm a street guy. And so how you stay alive in the street, and I'm sure some of you know this, is you watch and you listen. That's how you stay alive and survive in the street. And so those are the skills that I have when I get here, so that's what I start doing. And I noticed very quickly two very distinct groups of people here. Um, I was going to a club every morning. It was called the Erie Easy Does It Club. And I was going to the club to the morning meeting every day. I was working midnight shift out to the Ford plant, and I'd get off work. I'd go to the meeting. And I noticed very quickly two groups of people, people who were staying sober continuously and people who were not. And if you go to any meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or any length of time in the world, you're going to see those two groups of people. Now, um, so I, I, the people who were not staying sober, they were in and out, in and out. What I noticed was every time they came back in from being out, they looked worse than the last time they came back in from being out. Um, I didn't see nobody coming back in with a pile of money and driving a new BMW and talking about how good it was out there. Right? They talked of being restless, irritable, and discontented. They talked of living in terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. That's group one. And I ain't, we don't shoot our wounded in here. I'm, I'm sharing with you, this is what I saw. And then there was another group of people. And if you've been here at this convention any amount of time so far this weekend, you've seen them greeting at the door. Um, the, the committees and the council was introduced last night. You'll see them at every meeting, you know, setting up tables and chairs, making coffee, greeting at the door. They talk about God, big book, step spirituality, helping others, and enjoying life sober. We'll call them group two. Now, my story is going to prove to you I am no rocket scientist, but it sure looked to me like group two had a better deal going on than group one. Right? So let's keep this simple. What is it that people in group two are doing that the people in group one aren't? So I start watching, right? Now, the people in group two had some things in common. They all seemed to have something called a sponsor. Now, I didn't know what a sponsor was. I used to play softball for Cronin's Tavern. They was our sponsor. And... uh <laughs> 
I got I got free beer and, and clothes out of that deal, and I thought, maybe AA ain't so bad, right? And you sat me down and you told me what a sponsor was. You told me that a sponsor is somebody has working knowledge and experience with the steps of this program through applying them to their life at a day at a time, who is willing to take the time to walk me page by page through that process in the book, and just as importantly, maybe even more importantly, is a living demonstration of those principles in their life who can show me through the power of their example what my life can be like if I do what they do. And that is what a sponsor is. Sometimes I like to do this, and there was new people here last night, and so I'm going to ask this. Um, would everybody in here this morning who is willing to sponsor a new person, would you please raise your hand? Thank you very much. If you knew and you ain't got a sponsor, I just hooked you up, right? No one ever need leave an AA meeting without the benefit of sponsorship. And if you anything like me, when I came here, I don't know if you got 10 years or 10 minutes, nor do I know if you're willing to help a person like me who doesn't even feel he deserves any help. So if you're new here right now, I just gave you a little shortcut. The help that you've been wanting just identified itself. What you do with that information is up to you. It's up to you. I have sponsorship in AA today. I'm sponsored by Bob D. in uh, Las Vegas. And Tammy said, i never seen nobody travel as much as Kent. Check my sponsor out. Oh, uh, and um, he's, uh, I love my sponsor. I, I'm just going to say that. Um, I was raised in Alcoholics Anonymous by the late Bill Finley and Lorraine and Kenny Bombalicki in Cleveland. Um, My great-grand sponsor was, was Bob Smith, the co-founder of AA. And, and that's how I was raised in Alcoholics Anonymous. And i um, very grateful um, for the help that I've had. Um, another thing that people in Group 2 had in common uh, is they had something called the home group. I, was one of, I went to a lot of meetings when I was new because I didn't have nowhere else to go. I wasn't welcome anywhere else. I knew I couldn't go back where I was, right? But but nobody really wanted me. So I went to lots of meetings, right? And people would ask me, "What's your what's your group? What's your home group?" And and you ever hear a newcomer say this? All the groups are my home group, right? Because I go through them every week, right? But I have no commitment at any of them. And there's a reason for that. I haven't put my name in a home group roster for a reason. Because I don't want you getting too close to me. I don't want you to. You seem to be able to know things about me that I don't want you to know. So I'm new, and I'm keeping you at a distance. And I was at a meeting one day, and a guy said, if you ain't got a home group, you're homeless in AA, and just the last place in the world that I can afford to be homeless. And I got that. So I got a home group, and it's a Venice group. And let me say something about my home group. My home group ain't the best group in the world. ain't the worst group in the world. It's just an AA group. One of the first things that my first sponsor taught me is it's okay to stop competing now. No. My entire life. I lived on a better than or less than basis, right? And something happens when I'm better than or less than. I'm never a part of. Alcoholism is a disease that thrives, thrives, insists upon separation and isolation. Tradition one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon a a unity. Anything consciously or unconsciously that separates me from you as better than or less than 
puts me back on that island again. And if my experience proves nothing, it, pro it is concrete proof that on my own, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. So my home group ain't the best group in the world. It's the worst group in the world. It's just an A.E. group. I feel like it's the best group for me, and I hope you feel like your group is the best group for you, but that don't make my group better than yours, and it don't make yours better than mine. I, I, this, 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 this thing of separation, I have to be very, very careful in here. Very careful. Our primary purpose is to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. I think we do a pretty good job of that, and we have a lot of fun in the process. Uh, and that's what I like to call the total package in Alcoholics Anonymous. Sponsorship, big book and steps, home group, service commitment. In my experience, which is the only thing I'm allowed to share from behind the podium, I have yet to meet an alcoholic of our type. And if you don't know what an alcoholic of our type is, read the book. Who has come in here, taken that total package, applied it to their life one day at a time to the best of their ability, which is all that's required. If you're new here, I'm going to take some pressure off you. Because I come in here thinking i got to do everything perfect. And if I do make one little mistake during the day, I ain't no good. And you know what I'm talking about, that mentality. No, God don't require more of you today than you're capable of. If you simply do the best you can with what you have today, you're going to have a good day and you're going to stay sober. You're going to stay sober. So I have yet to see anyone come in here and do those things and pick up a drink not one single time, and I've been here for a while. The simplicity of Alcoholics Anonymous. Those who do get and those who don't, don't, and it's just that simple. I never sat in a bar room, watched somebody across the bar drinking and thought I was going to get drunk watching them drink. That's just as ridiculous as me coming in here, sitting here watching you get a sponsor in a group and work the steps and start helping other people and think that somehow magically it's going to rub off on me. I will get from here in direct proportion what I put into it. That's how this works. Do nothing, get nothing. I, I used to be the director of Stella Maris, which is the second oldest a treatment center in the world. After I retired from Ford, I was director of Stella Mercer for three years. And um, I, I had all these guys, right, and they'd come in and they'd say, I've relapsed. I was like, really? you have a sponsor? No, no. Do you have a home group and, and, and a service commitment? No, no. Did you work the steps out of the big book to the best of your ability a day at a time? Well, no, no. Well, what did you relapse from? <laughs> the 12 steps says haven't had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. It doesn't say haven't had a spiritual awakening as a result of attendance. <laughs> we got people going out here and saying, I've done this and it don't work, and you've done nothing but attend these meetings. Tell the truth. I came to some meetings, I didn't do one single thing that was suggested, and what I got was a break from drinking. A relapse is a return to a prior condition. If the prior condition is untreated alcoholism, and the treatment for it is the steps, unity, service, and recovery is the treatment, and you haven't done that, i got news for you, you haven't relapsed, you've continued to drink. 
And we need to start telling people that. Just showing up here is a beginning. It's just the beginning. I identified myself as an alcoholic when I come here. I didn't know what that was when I got here either. I always had a definition for it, though, because a guy like me got to have a ready definition. Uh, I think I know everything if you haven't figured that out. And uh, you'd ask me as he, in my early teens what an alcoholic is, I would have told you somebody's drunk every day. Got no idea where I got that definition from. Looks like somebody caught watching TV. I don't know. But that would have been it. Somebody's drunk every day. As a teenager, and so here's the problem with my definitions of alcoholism. As my disease progressed, I kept fitting my definitions. As a teenager, I became a daily drinker. Er, that ain't it. <laughs> Alcoholic is somebody that misses work, school, important things in life because of drinking. It interferes with one's priorities in life. Yes, that certainly must be an alcoholic. As a teenager, alcohol began to interfere with work, school, important things in life. Er, that ain't it. Gave her a little hard thought. I finally figured her out. Alcoholic is somebody who goes to jail because of their drinking. Now, I don't know where I got that, but as you'll hear in a few minutes, I really had to change that one. <laughs> By the time I staggered through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, my definition is that guy underneath the bridge. You see him, long trench coat, stocking cap on in a hot day like this in July, drinking white Irish rose, mad dog, a thunderbird out of brown paper sack, sleeping under a cardboard box. Yes, that certainly must be an alcoholic. The reason that was my definition when I got here is because that's the only thing that had not yet happened to to me. And if it wasn't for my family, that is exactly where I would have been. I can stand here in all honesty today and tell you I drank in Wino's Alley with them old men in Sandusky, Ohio. The only difference between me and them is when it got dark, there was somebody opening the back door for me and there was nobody left to do it for them. Oh, I am a low-bottom, stumble-bum drunk. That's what I am. No, and uh, I, I, I'm a guy that really likes. When I first come to AA, my disease is still active. And it doesn't like AA, and it don't like you. And so it starts to compare rather than identify. And start looking for, listening for little things to disqualify myself for membership here. And I heard a lot of talk about homelessness. Well, I thought to myself, well, you know, that, that ain't me. I sat in an AA meeting one day and poked out my chest, and I'm brand new. I said, you know, I ain't never been homeless. There was a man sitting in that meeting. His name was Jim Redman. He was... He died 53 years sober. Jim Redman was in the corner. He said, really? He said, son. And it wasn't even his turn to share. That really upset me. <laughs> and he said, really? He said, son. He said, I got some bad news for you. He said, if you grown and you living in your mom and daddy's house and you ain't paying no rent, you're homeless. That man hurt my feelings. I hope I didn't step on no toes in here this morning. <laughs> but the truth will set you free. Right. Y'all remember Otis on the Andy Griffith show? All right. That's, that's what I, that's what I didn't know. Wrinkled clothes, wine on him, in and out of jail. I watched every episode of the Andy Griffith show. I remember... Uh, Otis working no place. Yeah. That's what it looked like to me. I was over in uh, England 
talking at a big convention, and I said, I asked them that. I said, y'all remember Otis on the Andy Griffith show? 2,000 people went. No. That set me back like 10 minutes. I'm like, really? Are you kidding me? Ain't me enough? It's funny, I'm in North Carolina too, huh? What is this thing called alcoholism, man? First thing in the book, doctor's opinion. I can't fix what's broke if I don't know what's broke. First thing in the book, what is the problem? I suffer from a threefold deal. It's mental, it's physical, and it's spiritual. Mental part of it, they call it mental obsession to drink. What is an obsession? I'm a simple guy. That obsession is a thought that is so powerful in my mind, it will override or overcome any thinking that I can raise as a defense against it. What are some of the mental defenses I tried to raise against taking the first drink? Well, I tried um, willpower. Didn't work. Somebody told me when I was new, trying willpower against alcoholism is like eat a box of X-Lax and then use your willpower not to go to the bathroom. <laughs> right? Totally unsuccessful in that deal. I tried self-knowledge, right? And, and if you read Bill's story, which is Kent's story, right? He tried all this stuff, right? Self-knowledge. I just happened. I did this, and now I know this, and I won't do this. No, that didn't work. Did it again. I tried fear of consequences I might. Everybody try that? Fear, right? Bill in his story said, fear sobered me for a bit, Right? As a teenager, I'm waking up in the morning, my eyes open, I'm laying in the bed, and I'm mentally making a list of all the reasons why I ain't picking up today. If I pick up today, I'm going to get kicked off the team, get kicked out the house, my girlfriend going to leave me, later on, lose my job, um, dirty urine, I'm going to the penitentiary. All these things true in my life at one time or another, and if you drink like I drink and do the things I do, you usually got four or five of them going on simultaneously. And I would lay in the bed, all those things are true, and I would take a look at the truth, and I would make a decision based on truth, easiest kind of decision there is to make. I don't want the consequences of this, therefore, I am not doing it. And I meant it as much as I mean it right now. And then I get out of the bed. And usually about five seconds later. Now, our book, our book refers to that thinking as sound Reasoning, right? And it is. It's sound reasoning. But our book says that parallel to this sound reasoning ran some insanely, circle the word insanely in your book, trivial excuse to drink. Because I get out of the bed and here's the thought that comes to me. It's Friday. It's Friday, and you know I have worked all week, which for me is three days. <laughs> and, and you know, if you stop and think about it, none of that stuff is really my fault. If it hadn't been for this and this and this, right, you follow me. I... I'm grown. I ain't hurting anybody. This is the United States of America. And I deserve a drink. See how quickly? 
And here's the killer thing. Roll, if you knew in here, roll with me for a minute. Those, 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 that sound reasoning, those thoughts, never come back. Boom, doors closed. The insidious insanity of alcoholism. So I pick up a drink and I drink it because now I deserve one, quite honestly, right? And the second part of the disease that Dr. Silkworth talked about, he called it the phenomenon of craving. A little story I like to tell about that. I'm out cutting my grass on a 90-degree day, so is my non-alcoholic next-door neighbor. This is the truth. I was sober when this happened. And I'm watching him. He got hot and thirsty. He shut his lawnmower off. He walked across the lawn to his deck. He flipped open a cooler. It was full of cold beer. He pulled out a cold one. He popped the top on her. He sucked her down. It quenched his thirst. And nobody in this room is going to believe it, but I've seen this with my own two eyes. With that full cooler of beer still sitting there, that man actually got back on his lawnmower <laughs> and finished cutting his grass. Dude, I'm over here. I'm 10 years sober, and I'm going, dude, are you kidding me right now? Right? Because I ain't like my neighbor. When I put it in me, it don't quench my thirst. What it does to me, and if you knew, maybe it does it to you, is it makes me thirstier. And grass cutting is over at the Coleman house. My lawnmower will be sitting in that same spot two weeks from now when I get out of the county. Right? Spiritual malady, soul sickness. Right? It talks about we drink essentially for the effect produced by alcohol. It says that I am restless, irritable, and discontented unless I can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. So when am I restless, irritable, and discontented? I, I am restless, irritable, and discontented when I am sober. My problem is not alcohol. My problem is alcoholism. And it is a condition of untenable and unbearable sobriety. And so what the steps of this program do is address those things which block me off from the sunlight of the Spirit, right? and so that I can get that sense of ease and comfort every day when I get up off my knees and, and I live the principles of this program in my life a day at a time. The answer is already within me. It is blocked. And it's I'm reminded of the story of, of Michelangelo and the statue of David. And, and after he finished it, a man said, how could, you, how, how could you make something this beautiful out of just an old block of marble? And, and he said, it's easy. He said, I just chipped away the pieces that weren't supposed to be there. I'm walking around with the answer. And, and, and what these, the steps of this program do is remove that. This is not about acquisition. Chuck used to say, Chuck Chamberlain used to say, uncover, discover, discard. And that's what this is about. So my spirit is obscured by itself in all its forms. And, and I'm not going to do a workshop for you this morning, but that's my problem. So the book then goes on to say that when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. Because what's going to happen is that obsession is going to be removed. Okay? And that's what the steps do. The physical, that's, that's treated by not taking the first drink. But the first drink comes from the obsession. So the steps hmm, get the obsession gone. So the physical then, by not taking the first drink, am I making sense this morning? Right? So I got this threefold illness. This is called alcoholism. And I don't know if you got it, but I got it. And if I don't treat it, 
Death, imprisonment, or commitment are guaranteed me, and if you're new and you don't understand that, stick around here and watch what happens to the people who don't. It is the reality of, of, of the, the illness. I'm 55. I was born in the city of Sandusky, Ohio. The second of three boys I was raised in a Christian home. I had as fine a mother and father that have ever graced this earth. I am the son of Pete and Evelyn Coleman. Um, my mom and dad were the best. Um, my mom worked for Chrysler Corporation. My dad worked for General Motors. I'm retired from Ford. <laughs> and, uh, and I always say, you know, we, we, we had a lot of craziness in the house. We, we had really nice cars. But, uh, <laughs> But well, we grew up and uh, got everything. We didn't get everything we needed. We got everything we wanted. We were spoiled rotten. Um, if mom and dad said no, there was a woman who lived in our house, and her name was grandmother. And, uh, and the word no was not in her vocabulary. So, so we would go behind mom and dad, dad's back, and we would get one. That's the life. I, we went on vacations. Uh, I got family. I got family in Charlotte down here. In South Carolina, uh, is where my mother and them from, spent a lot of time down here as a kid. We went on vacations every year, 10 speeds, mini bikes, motorcycles. Was wearing $100 tennis shoes in 1972. I mean, that's, that's the kind of family I come from. Everything we want, everything we needed. And, and not only that, um, I came from a home where the principles of this program were not only taught, but they were demonstrated on a daily basis. Right? In our home, they told us honesty is the best policy. A real man is always honest with himself and other people. In our house, maybe in yours, we got automatic whoopings when we got caught lying. Did that happen to anybody else's house in here? That's step one. <laughs> I learned the importance of honesty at the end of a hickory stick. My mother said to me, I'm about seven years old. Can you come here? I am concerned about you. She said, contrary to what you seem to believe, the sun don't rise when you wake up and set when you go to bed. She said, look out the window and tell me what you see. I said, sky, grass, trees, birds, flowers, people. She said, this, it just doesn't pop up out of nowhere. There's a power that's greater than you, and all you have to do is be willing to believe that. Step two. In our house, they said, if you would make a decision to put your life in the hands of that power. In my house, they call that power God. She said, you will always have what you need, no matter what happens outside or around you. She was telling us that the answer is inside, not outside, step three. In our house, they told us any time you got a problem, no matter how bad you think it is, come talk to us about it. A problem shared is a problem half solved, right? Don't get separated, right? Steps four and five. My mom used to say the bigger room in a human being's life is the room for improvement. There are no perfect people. If you can make C's, you can make B's. If you can make B's, you can make A's. If you can make all conference, you can make all state. And if you'll ask the power to help you in any positive thing you want to do in your life, the power will always help you. That's what the power does. That's step six and seven. And I also told us anytime you heard harm or wrong, someone else go make right the wrong you done. Your own apology, make it. Your own money, pay it. Your own time, give it. Clean up your mess. That's what responsible people do. That's how you stay free. That's steps eight and nine. My mother used to say you can never go forward in this life if you don't know where you are today and what you need to work on to get where you want to go. When I was a junior in high school, I read a book about Socrates, and he said the uninventory life is a waste. Step 10. Our grandmother told us when we were little boys, you want to know the secret to having a good day. When you wake up in the morning, slide out of the bed onto your knees and say one word, please. As you go through the day and you don't know what to do, ask the power that created all of this for some help. And at night, before you get back in the bed, hit your knees again and say two words, thank you, conscious contact with God, step 11. And in our home, they told us the most important thing we could do with our lives was not acquire money and material things, but to be of service to others. 
We were taught to follow the golden rule. Talk to other folk the way you want to be talked to. Treat folk the way you want to be treated. Respect your elders. Offer to share what you have with others before you have with your own. Give service to your fellow man. Step 12. When I got on a bus to go to kindergarten, I was already armed with a set of principles, spiritual in nature, that I know today and I recognized after I was here for a little while as the 12 steps of this program. If you're new here, spiritually principled living did not originate in Akron, Ohio in 1935. Those principles are ancient. And I got a message for you. There's a lot of people out there who live like that every single day. And check this out. They don't expect a pat on the back for it either. I sit in meetings. I look at meetings at home. Somebody will say, boy, them people out there sure could use what we got in here. Where do you think we got it? Read your AA history, for God's sake. Them drunks over in Akron and Cleveland and New York did not think this up. Look at the people who helped us. So you're probably thinking, well, Ken, if you had all that before you went off to kindergarten, what on earth are you doing leading an AA meeting tonight? Bet you, bet you know that too, don't you? I never did any of it. I talked about it a lot. I'd be down to I'd be down to Brown Lee's Tavern. You ever meet in the bar and be somebody in there quoting scripture? That was me. I'd be down to Brown Lee's, somebody'd be coming apart, and somebody come apart down Brown Lee's every week. Sometimes people got taken apart down Brown Lee's every week, but usually because they was getting divorced, going to jail, or losing their job, because that's what we did down to Brown Lee's. Kent would stagger over with a drink in his hand, been drinking all day, and make some this is the statement I would make. John. Chapter 5, verses 11 to 17. I'm giving spiritual guidance down to Brownlee's Tavern. And I didn't stop there. I give marital advice down to Brownlee's. I had never had a wife, but I didn't see how that mattered. With my life savings laying on the bars, I give financial guidance down to Brownlee's. My daddy called me a walking encyclopedia of perfectly useless information. Because none of it was born of my experience. I am a parrot. I am a parrot. It, it doesn't come from in here. It comes from up here. Okay. And I came in AA and did the same thing. If I heard somebody say something in a meeting and people patted them on the back, the next day I'd go to a meeting, make sure they weren't there, and say the same thing. Because right. I'm still looking outside, Right. To address what's in here. And so I'm a parent. And, and I heard people say things and get pats on the back. I heard a guy say at a meeting, boy, I sure had a good time out there drinking. Boy, they clapped and they patted on the back. Yeah, that yeah, sounds good. So the next day, I made the mistake of going into a meeting and saying that. And that same guy, Jim Redmond, was sitting in the corner. And again, it was not his turn to share. And he said, really, did you? He says, if we got your mother, your father, or a girl you live with, your boss, your co-workers, your neighbors, and your creditors in here. And we said to them, you know, Ken, he, has, he had a really good time out there drinking. What kind of time did you have? What do you think they'd say? I said, I don't want to have that meeting. I said, I've never thought of that. 
And he said, of course you haven't, because all you think about is you. He said, you're so full of yourself, you can't see beyond your own face. I do not stand at the podium and glorify the disease that took my family to places that they had no business going. That made my life of a living hell. I, I do not stand at the podium and talk about good times. You know what my definition of a good time drinking is, honestly? Any consequences that have to be paid for my behavior are paid by somebody else. That was a good time. Let's get real in here. My, my, this disease is kind of baffling and powerful, and it would love to plant seeds in the back of my mind, because it's real patient, that there was something good or redeeming about this. I wasted almost 20 years of my life with that crap, and I ain't going to stand up here and glorify it. If you want to, that's up to you. I had an older brother and a younger brother. As a kid, I was restless, irritable, and discontented. I was, I like how Wilson writes. He said I was maladjusted to life, man. I'm like that. Remember how we used to have to adjust the TV, the horizontal, go the vertical, right, to try to get a good, I'm a picture out of focus. I always felt this, this current of nervousness. I know what it is now. It's called fear, right? But I, I don't know what it was then. Just, and it seemed to increase in intensity every day, right? And, and I'm always, I always feel somehow a half a step behind, a little bit less than everybody else my own age. And I don't know why I felt that way, and I ain't here to analyze it. Right? I'm, I'm a solution guy. I ain't a problem guy. I can just tell you that's how it was. I had an older brother who was raised in the same house, taught the same things, had the same experiences as I did, who didn't feel that way. It's the way it goes, right? But that's how I always felt, right? So I'm always looking to see what I can do to make sure that you like and approve of me. I was addicted to approval way before I picked up a drink, right? So I got to say the right things. I got to measure every word. I got to measure every movement because everybody's watching me. Now, of course, I found out later, no one was watching me. But this is all in my head, right? I used to tell my sponsor, I says, I'm, I'm very sensitive. He said, son, here we call that self-centeredness. I was telling Bob a, a couple of months ago about some stuff I had going on at work. He said to me, he says, he says, Ken, he says, you know those shadows that you see moving like out of the corner of your eye? I said, yeah, Bob, what are those? He said, those are people. <laughs> My first boss said I was two years sober before I realized there were other people in AA beside me. Right? And, and that's how it is for me growing up. So I am not, I am just, I'm, I'm restless, I'm, I'm looking for something. My first drink of choice was my older brother. Um, I come from a, a, a football family. Um, that's what my family do. Some families do art and music and stuff, and my family plays football. Um, my dad played for West Virginia State. My uncle Bo played for Penn State. I had two cousins who played in the National Football League for over 10 years. That's what we do. That's what we was raised to do. There's no bearskin rug pictures of us as little boys. It's us in a diaper and a three-point stance in the middle of the living room. That's what my daddy was like. That's how my daddy, that's a true story. That's how my daddy was. And that's what we was raised to do. I had a brother by the time he was 16 years old, was six foot two. He weighed 215 pounds. He could run a 4440 on a cinder track in tennis shoes. And he was a tailback. That's a big running back in 1972. And um, a man named Lee Hayes came to our home. 
And he was going to go to Michigan. I had a cousin that was All-American in Michigan. And he was going to go to Michigan, but one visit from old Woody. And uh, he uh, was going to go to Ohio State. And uh, before his, his senior year, he uh, we used to scrimmage a high school team in Ohio called the Maslin Tigers, very famous high school football program. And we used to, and we used to actually, there was no playoffs back then. That was the state championship game. And we would play it a week before the season started. And uh, late in the scrimmage, he fell funny, hit his head, um, walked to the sideline, collapsed, stopped breathing, nine hours of brain surgery on Monday. He died Wednesday, September the 5th, 1972. I remember like it was yesterday. I could tell you everything that happened that day from the minute I opened my eyes to the minute I closed them. I used to follow my brother everywhere. I had ease and comfort in his shadow. Nobody expected me to be, do, or say anything. I hid behind him, and I was he was my first drink of choice. I'm a guy who looks outside to try to fix what's going on with me inside, and that's going to become the pattern of my life. And um, that is not what made me an alcoholic. Stop any car out on the street, you can get similar stories. Tragedies happen. People live. People die, don't they? Um, what did it do to me beside broke my heart? Um, almost killed my mom and daddy. And I ain't even going to tell you what it did to my grandparents. Um, it actually changed athletics in our town. We were talking about it a couple of weeks ago. From that day to now, that was a long time ago. And it ain't never been the same. Um, it seemed to intensify the feelings of difference that I already had. Because this was 1972. They didn't send counselors to the high school so I could learn how to deal with this. 1972, you was on your own, baby. And now I'm hanging around guys, and there's that awkward silence. Here come Kent. His brother just died, and no one knows what to say, right? And I, and I just feel even more isolated, and I feel even more different. And that's how it was for me in 1972. My mom used to talk to me a lot after my brother died, and, and she would say things like, Kenny, God has been good to you. You're going to have a really great life and help people. I used to tell my mom, I don't know where you get this stuff from. I'm going to tell you real quick what I want out of life. I want mine. I want to get it my way, and I'm going to need you to leave me alone while I'm doing it. Because I, I ain't going to do it the way you do. My mother was a president of Ohio Baptist Women's Convention. All these famous people that you see in religion from the South and all them people been in my house. My mother was the highest ranking woman in Chrysler Corporation. She's the smartest person that I've ever known. Uh, my mother was a very powerful woman. She walked into a room like this. She lighted up. And, uh, and that's what I had in my house. And uh, my mother had goals and hopes and dreams for aspirations for me to be something, but I had my own. And uh, my mom would shake her head, and she'd say, Kenny, you don't get it. And I'd look at her, and I'd say, no, you the one who don't get it. If you don't think my way's going to work, get out the way and watch me roll. One of the gifts God didn't give me is I did well in school. I give God credit for that. I'm a guy that's not challenged by school. I do well in school with little or no effort. Um, I wasn't challenged by high school at all. Um, they moved me into accelerated classes. By the time I was a sophomore, I was taking senior classes. Um, and I give God credit for that today because I didn't work for it and I didn't earn it. That was a gift. Uh, of course, I took credit for it back then because that's the tone and tenor of my life. Anything good, I take credit for. Anything bad, I'm blaming you. And uh, my first sponsor, Bill, told me, um, he looked at me one day at a meeting. He said, son, he said, I'm going to tell you something. I hope you remember it. He said, anytime you're in a room alone, all your enemies are there. And uh, <laughs> what he was referring to is my thinking. I sit in study hall. I'm 14 years old. I had a visit from the enemy in my thinking, and here's the thought that come to me that day. You know, Kent, these people in here are breaking their neck trying to get B's and C's, taking general math and science. I'm taking calculus, physics, fourth year, and fourth year, English. I'm sleeping in class, and uh, I'm getting straight A's. You know, it just might be entirely possible that I know everything. <laughs> Y'all know where this story's going, don't you? 
right? Straight to the penitentiary, right? No. I had no evidence to support that thought as being true. I accepted it as a fact. I left the room and took action on it. I went home and shared that with my mother and father. I thought they ought to know. Going to change things around the house somewhat. It almost did. My father came. You know, my daddy, I was scared of my daddy. My daddy was a Korean War hero. My daddy was in the woods in Korea. I saw the letters of commendation. I saw the medals. Uh, my mother told us when we were little boys, your dad's a really good guy, but he is a man who is capable of great violence. Don't push him too far. And, uh, and, and when I made that pronouncement in the living room, my father come up off of that couch, and he come off that couch real quick. And uh, I decided not to stay and wait for to find out what he wanted. And, you know, until the day he died, I never asked him what he intended to do. What I believe is he was thinking, hey, look what we got in the house. I'm going to kill it. But anyway, I... <laughs> I beat him to the screen door, and I closed the screen door, right, you know, and uh, and I looked through the screen door, and he looked at me, and I looked him right in his eyes, and I laughed in his face. And my daddy told me, he said, boy, he said, you have a hard life, he said, because don't nobody know everything, and I just kept laughing. A significant day in my life. It was talked about last night, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness are the three essentials of recovery, yet these are indispensable, meaning I cannot learn and grow without them. On that day, I closed the door. From that day forth, everybody in my life's an idiot. My mother, my father, the preacher, the teacher, later on, the police, the judges, the lawyer, the probation, the P.O., you can't tell me because if I don't know it, it ain't worth knowing, became my philosophy of life. I'm selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed, and according to my mother, mean as a rattlesnake, I have yet to take a drink of alcohol. I tell people I was the perfectly tilled soil for the disease of alcoholism. All I had to do was water it, and one day I got, it. I got in a car with a guy whose life I lived in my head. Snazzy car, pocket full of money, ran around with the kind of girls I ran away from. And I got in the car with Johnny, and he said, you want to get something to drink? Now, I have been warned about drinking. Alcoholism does not run in my family. It gallops. And I have been told we do not do alcohol well. Look at Junkie Ed. Look at Junior. I didn't have it in my house. Both sides of my family are rife with this disease. Uh, but if Johnny had said to me that day, let's go rob the carry out, I guarantee you I would have done it. That's how empty I am on the inside. That's how empty I am on the inside. Outside solutions don't fix inside problems. We went to the drive-thru. We bought 10 quarts of Slis Malt Liquor Bull to the youngsters in here who never heard of a quart of beer. It proceeded to 40 ounce. <laughs> it was 32 ounces of beer, and we bought 10 of them because it was on sale and we could get the most bang for our buck. We didn't care what kind of beer it was. He said, five quarts for you, five quarts for me. We dropped the convertible top on that beautiful Pontiac. It was a day like today. We rolled through the streets of some dusty music, music blasting, and we drank that beer, and my life changed. I've heard a lot of descriptions of what happens when that alcoholic first feels the effect produced by alcohol. And the only thing that I can tell you is this. On that day, for the first time in my life, I felt whole. I felt complete. And that's a very powerful thing. I went from shy, insecure, and afraid to bold, confident, suave, debonair, and absolutely fearless in about 20 minutes. I drank all five quarts of that beer. We, we, uh, we went behind the Derrick apartments where all the thugs hung out. I had not said five words in public in the last three years. Music is blasting. People surrounded the car. I looked at Johnny. I said, turn that music down. There's a few people. I want to tell a few things here who are present this afternoon that I've been wanting to tell them for quite some time. <laughs> and I went around that circle of hoodlums, told each and every one of them not only what I thought of them, but what they needed to do, in my opinion, to improve themselves. 
the reaction of the boys around the car that day is guys are leaning in the convertible and hugging me and saying, see, I told you. I told you, my boy, all right, he's loosening up. He's doing a little drinking. He's one of us. Connected. Connected. And I got it, Jack. You better believe I got it. Right? And I now have the acceptance of the people whose acceptance I want the most. Not mom and dad, them drive-by shooters behind the Derrick apartments. Alcohol equals success, and you better believe I got it. We left from there, went up to home with some of them girls he run around with. I run away from. I walked, never been over there in my life. I walked into that house like I was paying the mortgage. I went in, I sat down at the dining room table, and I made eye contact with a girl I still believe is the finest girl to graduate from some dusty high school in its 173-year history. I had never even breathed in her direction, much less said hello. And I looked at her, and she looked up at me, and I said, come here. And she got up and started walking toward me. Now, any sane human being at this point would probably think, hey, Kim, she wasn't so shy and scared. Look what you could have done just by speaking up. Is that what I thought? Absolutely not. Here's what I thought. If you had been drinking before now, look what you could have done. Is anybody following this? I immediately attributed it to drinking. Right? Now, this is an honest program. And I'm going to be honest with you here this morning. When she got over there to me, I had no idea what to do with her. I don't think that far ahead when I'm drinking. So I watch a lot of TV. Guys like me got a lot of time on her hands. We watch a lot of TV. On TV, they go like this. So I did. And she sat down in my lap. And my life changed again. And the upshoot to that whole story is on that day, alcohol did for me what I could not or would not do for myself. The rest of what happened that day is the rest of my drinking history, and we ain't going to have to be bothered with it. It's called drink of trouble. Okay? Now, a lot of people come to Alcoholics Anonymous. You ain't been to jail. You ain't had DUIs and, you know, all this crap. And you ain't lost everything, and you don't have to. You can get off the elevator at any floor. The price of admission here is honesty. That's all it is, baby. You, don't, you do not have to do that. However, that is not my experience. If this here was a drink, and I stood here this morning drank, a cop would drop right out of that light and land in the middle of this drink. <laughs> I used to go to the Sahara Club in Cleveland, and the, them old guys used to say, drink trouble, drink trouble. I'm like, I get that part, Okay. What happened to me the rest of that day is a very simple thing. Well, I got drunk. I went to blackout. I got no. According to eyewitnesses at the house, <laughs> I came in, threw up all over the house, passed out, right? My mother's in the hallway screaming at me, banging on the door. Get out here, clean up this mess. You know you've been drinking, you know, blah, 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 blah. I staggered into the hallway in what later years would be my drinking uniform, my underwear. I got a hangover you can take out and look at. I go, I go in the bathroom. I lock the door. I look through bloodshot eyes into the mirror. She's still screaming in the hallway. And this is what I said. You know, man, oh man, I cannot wait to do that again. Grounded for life is what was being discussed in the living room and how they planned to execute that sentence. They're grounded for life the first time I got drunk. So I had a meeting with myself in the bathroom. Now I used to have a meeting with myself because every meeting with myself, I could solve most anything that's going on. If you knew, I do not recommend it. And I don't recommend it for myself today. 
I had a meeting with myself, and here's what I come up with. Okay, Kent, you got drunk? Yep, you got sick? Yep, you got grounded for life. Now, the problem, Kent, is not that you got drunk. The problem is that you got sick. So, so here's the solution. What you got to do is learn how to drink without getting sick. Is anybody in here with me? Right? I never once considered not drinking. That wasn't on the table. Why? Because alcohol equals pats on the back, girls in my life. Alcohol equals ease, comfort, confidence. And I'm gone. And I never looked back until I got to you. And that was 18 years later. And uh, I'm, a par- I'm, like, I'm a parent abuser, like he is. Um, I did foul things to my parents. You know, in our home, there was no hollering and screaming um, prior to me picking up a drink. There was no sleepless nights. Nobody said things like, we don't trust you anymore. Nobody said things like, you're not the son we raised. No, no, none of that. Th- there was no anxiety. There was no fear. There was no guilt and no shame. I bought that stuff into that house. I, and I infected the people who gave me life with those things. And, I, and, and, and I'm so glad that there's Al-Anon here this weekend. And that this is a family disease and a family illness. And where I, if you read our book, you will see how the family went to meetings together and that the wives went. Okay, That's the line of sponsorship I came out of. Here's what I was taught when I was new. You will have Al-Anon phone numbers in your phone. You will have Al-Anon meeting schedules in your car. When you go on a 12-step call, you will carry that information to the family. And you'll give that to the family. That's how where I come from. That's how we roll. That's how we roll. And uh, at the age of 16, I had a 1 o'clock curfew. I come home at 4 o'clock in the morning. My mother's sitting on the couch. I've been in Toledo with my fake ID, drinking gin and dancing with a woman older than my mother. And uh, and my, I walk in the door. My mother got tears running down her face. And this is what she tells me. She said, as your parents, we owe your roof over your head. Clothes on your back, food to eat, and education, we've done that. But she said, I got something you can't have, Kenny. And she said, that's my peace of mind. She said, you're going to penitentiary or the cemetery, and I ain't going with you. I'm done. Go. Do what you want. I'm done. Tears rolling down her face. This is what I said to my mom. I broke you. I broke you. And I want you to know something. I'm a little bit disappointed. Because it wasn't even that hard. You such a spiritual giant. And I walked away. That's Ken at age 16. Now, if I treated my mama like that, how do you think I treated yours? Uh, rest of it's just, I, I mean, I went off to college. I went to one of the best schools in the country. I went to Miami of Ohio. You know. I was down there drunk five years. I was an animal at this point. Um, still making amends to that institution today. Um, my mom and dad took me to college. We went in a van with all my stuff in it. If you was there that Sunday when the freshmen showed up, you would have seen hugging and crying and kissing, baby leaving home for the first time. If you watched my family, you would have seen alcoholism and its effect on the family. My father unloaded that van like his butt was on fire. They was up I-75 before I even got the key in the door. You know, 
You know, the last thing my father said before he went down the steps of the dormitory, this is a true story. Now your mother can sleep. I ain't hurt nobody. And I was a real nasty guy down there. I had shakes by the time I was 19 years old. Uh, I had set up headquarters at the Boar's Head Inn up on High Street. And I said to Tom, the bartender, who was kind of like my sponsor, I guess. Uh, I said, Tom, I said, I think I got Parkinson's. He said, yeah, Parkinson's, you're 19 years old. He said, here's what I want you to do, son. He said, go over to college corner and get your fifth, uh, 100-proof old granddad. He said, get up in the morning, drink your two shots. He said, I guarantee your hands will stop shaking. Without questioning that, I went and got it. Got up the next morning shaking like a leaf, drank two shots, my hands stopped shaking. You know what I said? That man's a genius. My first sponsor pointed out to me, he said, Kent, do you note that you never questioned the bartender? But you were surrounded by family, coaches, advisors, all these people who wanted only the best for you and to help you. And all you ever said was, I'm grown, I ain't hurt nobody, leave me alone. This is my life. But you never question the bartender. To the new people in here, why is it that I'm always willing to listen to the people who harm me? Why is that? Be careful. Like Bill's story, I mean, I went to college with goals and hopes and dreams and aspirations. My alcoholism progressed to the point where I constructed my life to accommodate my alcoholism, not my goals and dreams. Everybody know what I'm talking about. Right? I set my life up to accommodate my drinking by the time I'm 20 years old. And I come home and I go to work in an automotive plant with a degree from one of the best schools in the country, not because um, that's what I wanted, it, because I could drink and do that. I, I couldn't work at World Headquarters at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati like I was and I knew it. And I had got in the union with a summer job and I went to work on the line with that degree. And um, and I proceeded. I, I won't get into, you know, I was convicted of driving under the influence of uh, alcohol seven times in the state of Ohio. I've been convicted on felony weapons and narcotics charges. I, I You know, podium flash, I ain't going to get into all that. Um, I've been in a lot of trouble. But all of it well deserved. Um, at the end, no baths, no showers. Going to work two or three days a week. I got a liver that's distended about six inches. I had a heart attack when I was 28. Um, had me in a cardiac unit. My mother says to the doctor, I already lost my oldest son. I can't lose another one. And I was in there as a direct result of the use of alcohol and, of course, a white powdery substance that we all know about, don't we? And, uh, and I dropped dead. And, uh, and I laid there with tears in my eyes, and I said, God, if you let me live, I'll never do this again, ever. And I meant it as much as I mean it now. Two hours out of the cardiac, 48 hours later, I'm in a regular room, and I'm doing the same two things. You know, you know what my first thought was when they took me out of the cardiac unit? Whoo, that was close. <laughs> this calls for a celebration. Anybody in here relate? Are you kidding me? They sentenced me to five years in the state penitentiary one time. My uncle, my mother's brother, was the mayor of our town. That's the kind of family I come from. They sentenced me to five years in the penitentiary, 
And the judge looked at me, took her glasses off. They used to say, if Ann B. take her glasses off, you're going to penitentiary. She took the glasses off. She said, before I throw you away, she said, I'm going to put you on a period of indefinite probation. And, and um, I know your mom. I know your uncle. I know your dad. And, and one dirty urine, and you're going to do five years. And I ain't playing. And it was in Mansfield, the same prison where they filmed the Shawshank Redemption. That was the biggest steel prison in the world. That's where I was headed. All I got to do is pass the urine screens. She said, so much as an aspirin, I'm sending you. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. The next Friday, my first day to go to report to probation, here's the thought that came to me as I'm driving across town. You know, they say that they never test you on your first time reporting because they don't think anybody's that stupid. Can anybody relate to Who is they? Where does this come from? I staggered into adult probation with five years in the penitentiary hanging over my head, drunk. And I didn't do that because I'd rather be incarcerated than free. I didn't do that because I'd rather be drunk than sober. One of the worst statements made in here. I didn't do that because I'd rather be dead than alive. I did it because I'm powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. And until I get some power, it ain't going to stop. If I had the power to quit drinking on my own, I'd never come to AA. Why should I? It wasn't done by choice. Come out of the pump lounge, and I had what they call a moment of clarity, a moment of sanity. There's a guy in Cleveland, six-pack Charlie Kitchen. Charlie said, that's the moment when God paralyzes the liar in you long enough for you to see the truth. And here's what I saw. If you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. You better get some help. You can't do it by yourself, and you better do it now because you're running out of time. And I called the guy I went to college with. who's a doctor now, and he arranged for me to go to treatment. I went to Green Hall in uh, Zenia, Ohio, down by Dayton. I spent 35 days in a 28-day program. That'll tell you how that went. And uh, but they spent the whole time on the first step, and um, and I came out of there, and um, I came home, and um, I uh, I went to two hundred some meetings in three months, no sponsor, no steps, no nothing, and I ended up in the parking lot of Dale's Pub, shaking vibrating. I wanted to drink so bad. And I said my first prayer in AA, sitting in there with, with 200 and some meetings behind me, and it was a simple prayer. God, what am I doing wrong? And like a lightning bolt, what are you doing right? If you go to that many meetings, you hear every day what you got to do right. Um, get a sponsor, work the steps, get a home group, get active, right? And, um, and, and so I pulled out of the parking lot, and I went and I asked Bill to sponsor me. And this is what he told me. He said, I'll take you through the steps of this program, and I'll show you how I live them in my life. He said, son, you're one of them kind of drunks. He said, I want you to bury yourself knee deep. He said, no, forget that. He said, bury yourself shoulder deep in this thing called AA so you can't teeter and fall. And I've been shoulder deep in AA from that day to this. So if you're new in here, relapsing or drinking again or whatever is not a requirement. I haven't drank since I've been here, and a lot of us in here haven't either. So don't buy into that either. Um Made amends to my parents before they died. Um, what a blessing that was. They both got to see me sober. I went and lived with them for the first couple of years of my sobriety because I didn't have a place, safe place to be. And um, and I got to make amends to my mom. I was about two years sober, and Bill wouldn't let me say nothing. He just said, you're going to have to demonstrate. 
And um, when the time came, he said, go make it direct. And I had a big speech planned out. And all I could say was, you know, um, I looked at my mom. My mother had the biggest brown eyes I've ever seen. And, I, and all I could say was, Mom, I'm so sorry. And my mom looked at me, and she beamed at me. And she said, I forgive you. She said, promise me something, Kenny. You'll stay close to those people in AA. They were the answer to our prayer. They were able to do for you what we could not. And I promised you that I would, and I have. My dad died. I was, I don't know, like 18, almost 20 years sober, I guess. And uh, what a wonderful relationship we had. And I used the principles of this program in that relationship, and I never spoiled the amends that I made, regardless of what I thought or what he said or did. And um, I got married in here three years sober. Um, I got divorced 20 years sober. Um, I got two daughters, um, 19 and 14, and um, my daughters are, are, are they God's girls. They really are. I used to joke and say they look like my ex-wife and my mother, but they act like me. But really, they don't. Really, they don't. And uh, what a blessing. And, um, and I'm enjoying life. Um, and um, if you're new here, I want to leave you with this. Um, they gave me a tape of Warren Chisholm Sr., 12th man in AA in Cleveland, got sober in 39, and this is what he said. Anyone who comes here who is willing to practice the principles and precepts of this program is outlined in the book, Need Never Drink Again, One Day at a Time. I said to Finley, he can't say that, Need Never Drink Again. And Finley said, yes, he can. He said, and I'll tell you why. He says, because this is a spiritual program, and God doesn't fail. There is no failure here. If this don't work for me, it's because I have not fulfilled the conditions that have been laid down. i got to participate in my own recovery. Those who do get and those who don't, don't. And it's just that simple. If I said anything to help you, thank God. If I didn't, there's more speakers coming. Right? <laughs> right?